Unique Redwood. Thank you for joining Centering Conversations. It is a conversation powered by Voice Vision Value. And it is an exclusive conversation of conversations with Shonda. It is a delight and I am looking forward to this. Yes, same here. Thank you for having me. Yes, we are having this conversation. We are doing it virtually and you are sitting in Jamaica. I am. (laughs) And it is my happy place. I always suffer with like calling it my happy island and then people Uh with Aruba. And I was like, no, 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 no. Um. (laughs) It's Jamaica for me. And so... What does Jamaica do for you when you're there? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I came to Jamaica in 2020 to ride out the pandemic. It's where I'm from. So I was like, let me go home, ride this out a couple of months, you know, maybe three, four months. And we haven't left. I have to say that during the pandemic, I was so anxious. I mean, a lot of us were, right? And I came here and immediately, like all that anxiety about the way the U.S. was handling the, you know, the, the the COVID pandemic. I felt safer here, right? And this is a small island with very little resources, but they were doing just basic stuff, you know, basic public health, public health 101. I'm a public health practitioner, public health 101, right? Wear your mask, wash your hands, stay away from people. And what they were able to contain it in a way that the U.S. wasn't able to. So I felt safer here. And just being home, the thing I remember most was just eating the fruit that I grew up with. It was just so comforting. So that's what Jamaica still does for me. I am so, um, I just feel so lucky to be here and not be (laughs) in the United States facing daily, daily doses of, of racism. So I, Jamaica is doing everything for me right now. Yeah. Yeah. What, what I love for you and want more of for me (laughs) um, (laughs) are these places of cultural comfort Mm -hmm. that allows you to fully rest from the things that you experience and you're encountering and you feel responsible for. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, it's not like racism isn't here, right? Like this clearly colonial um, British empire um, influence is still here, but it's just not as in your face. I mean, I, I hardly see white folks, right? So that's one thing. This is a black country. And so it's just not as in your face. And so it just... And I feel bad sometimes because I'm not watching a lot of U.S. news anymore. So I do feel disconnected in a way that I don't think I can be because I, I care so much about what's happening with Black folks in the U.S. Um, but it 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 just creates a little bit of distance that allows me to feel normal, not anxious, and to just feel good every day. You know what I mean? I do. So, you know, like a place your soul can heal. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Who are you and what do you do? Mm -hmm. Who am I? So I'm an author. I'm a new author. Uh, But I cry and call me angry, a Black woman's memoir on racism and philanthropy. I am a strategist. I'm constantly thinking with organizations about their racial equity and racial justice strategy. I love organizations and what they can do if they are paying attention to the dynamics that can undercut their work. And so I'm also an organization development practitioner. I am a mom. I am a wife. I'm a daughter. I am recovering. I'm recovering from uh, a decade or, or more, actually 12 years in philanthropy, so I'm all those things, yeah, all the hurts, but also all of the joy that I'm experiencing right now. What do you have to recover from working in philanthropy? Mm-hmm. Lord have mercy. Where do I start? Um, you started with Lord have mercy and I understand. Oh, right, right, that, right. That, but yeah, where where do you start? What are you recovering from? So I'm recovering from being a couple of different people all the time, 
right? So going to work and trying to be professional and to speak a certain way and to parse my words and to not say the thing that white people will be afraid of um, and to protect my career, you know, like there's all of that. And then who I am, every other space I'm in, every other space that's black, every other space that feels at home. And so for years, I was this two, two people, right? And it was fracturing. It wasn't healthy. And so I'm recovering from that. Like, how can I, in this phase of my life, be one person, one whole person, all of me, and not have to try to to make white people feel comfortable, right? Um, even with the book, I remember when I was first writing it, um, getting really nervous about, well, what are white people going to think? Some friends of mine stopped me in my tracks and really wrote this book to Black women, right? So completely getting rid of the white gaze and really writing this book for and to Black women. The questions in each chapter, each essay, to Black women. They're not for anybody else. So that's one thing recovering from. I mean, I think the other thing, I really struggle with this word. I call it microaggressions. Um, other people say it's abuse, it's racist abuse. And I, I struggle with abuse, but I know that's what it is. And it's like the daily, the daily encounters, especially with white women, at least in the DC area, um, that just chipped away at me, just chipped away at my sense of self, sense of what I believe needed to happen, just demoralizing just demoralizing so that by 2018 I was I was in such a bad place such a bad place and um I am still recovering from that are you familiar with the term weathering I am I absolutely am yes so Arlene Geronimus who coined that term um, I studied with her during um, my grad school career, and uh, she actually has a little quote at the top of the book. She wrote, powerful and beautifully written. Um, and I talk about how Black women's bodies weather as a result of these experiences. And it's devastating. It's not It's not just like, you know, oh, I'm feeling a little stressed today. but literally wearing our bodies down, our physiology changes, um, more susceptible to heart disease, uh, diabetes, all of the inflammatory diseases. And we are literally dying as a result of this weathering. So it's, you know, I try to explain it as not, you know, people say, oh, stress. So then you just do a little yoga. You do a little, you know, a little meditation, go get you a massage. That's not this weathering. That's not, that's not going to do it. That's not what we're talking about. Racism has to actually be not happening for our bodies not to weather. And so, yes, very familiar with Arlene Geronimus's work. I remember when I first heard the term, it allowed me to understand what I was experiencing in my body and in the internal narratives that were that were um, spinning in my head. Yeah. Right. That and you sort of got to it in your opening of doing the work. And having to think consciously about how I use words mm -hmm. so that I can do the work. That's right. right. Like there's all these steps of doing before you can do that um, was an additional um, additional steps of navigating. Mm -hmm. And from my experience, both individually and the collective experiences of so many stories that I carry, um, you know, in the conversations I'm having like this with you that have been recorded, but many, many where people have said, it's not safe for me to record my full story. Oh, yeah. I've been getting that, too. That's right. Yeah. It's just simply not safe for me to record my full story. These daily encounters that are weathering for us 
may not also be fully understood mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. by others right so you sort of said it it's not stress mm-hmm. but sometimes what we encounter because we can't fight every encounter we mm-hmm. don't even talk about every encounter but how do we share the experience so that others know how they are contributing mm. within workplace. Oh, that's that's that question is hard for me right now because I am at this moment in time I am not concerned about how non-black folks um can hear what I'm trying to say. Um, I've done so much of that and been so disappointed. Like, I just remember doing all this like education, uh, showing all the data, right? Um, We had a series in DC called uh, Putting Racism on the Table. So people would come, I think we had six sessions. They're like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that racism was doing this And over time, you see the backtrack. You see the, oh, I can't participate in that because my board won't go for that. So you see the the ways in which power is what folks are not willing to give up for me or you or for anybody that looks like us. And so I just, it's hard to say but I just don't believe that we can share our experiences in a way that will interrupt because it's not about knowing. It's about, am I willing to give up my power? Am I willing to give up some of my privilege for someone else? And for me, the answer has always come back, not so much. Hmm. Not so much. And so for me right now, the conversations I want to be in with is Black women, other women of color, and thinking really hard about what it's going to take for us to mitigate weathering, to be well, given what we're facing. And I don't know what those answers are completely, but that's the conversation I want to be in. So I'm sorry. I, I I just don't know how to how to to get back into that space of trying to help white folks see what we're going through. Yeah, I mean, you, you don't have to apologize to me, and your answer is yours. And what what I heard in that though was a couple of things. So one thing that I heard is you have actively engaged in opportunities to hear full stories. And in the listening, there was not only not the action, but there was a retrenchment from what they heard. Absolutely. And so what I would take from that is every work environment, every uh, multiracial sort of interaction, interpersonal, all of these systems levels, we are talking about race or talking around race and people are sharing their experiences. Mm-hmm. And so part of moving change is believing the stories and staying at the table and moving forward, not backwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be that would be <laughs> one thing. <laughs> right. So, one thing. <laughs> if, if there's any action to listen <laughs> and to act and, and, and to act forward, not backwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? absolutely. That's what I heard. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I heard in there is that you were facilitating conversations and You know, I'm sitting in the Twin Cities. Mm -hmm. Um, We have been talking about a racial reckoning here for a couple of years. And in my mind, in many, there's not a reckoning. There was maybe a quick glimmer of understanding that there was a racial issue. And in many cases, that racial issue came down to policing and this one encounter and it gets sort of reduced and massaged and all these things. But there is more conversations. They have been more conversations centered around it, even if it's not fully honest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what should we, is there anything that you would offer in terms of understanding and facilitating those conversations around race? Mm. You mean with Black people or? Or within mixed company, however you choose to answer it. 
in mixed company. Okay. Mm-hmm. So next week I'll be in Oakland and it's the only conversation that I'm having since the book has been released with a white moderator and mixed company. Okay. So I chose this format because um, the moderator, Kate Schatz, who uh, co-wrote um, Do the Work, an anti-racist activity book with Kamau Bell. Um, I really, really like her. I really like what she's trying to do. Um, and so I said, okay, I'm coming to Oakland. Oakland, let's do this together. How we have structured the conversation is that if you are a white woman, this is just for women, this this conversation is for women and gender expansive folks. If you're a white woman in this space, these two hours, you don't get to talk. You don't get to ask questions. You don't get to provide feedback. So we'll provide them with note cards where they can write their questions, write what's coming up for them. They can turn it in, we can process it after. But in the space, um, they are in listening mode. And the Black women, other women of color in that space will be centered. Their stories, um, their hurt, their, their overcoming, that is what will be the center of that conversation. And so if I, if anything, if I make any suggestion for this kind of mixed company conversation, it's deep listening. Because in every other conversation I've ever been in, there's like a lot of Q&A, a lot of people asking questions, putting out, you know, quite racist things as they talk. We're trying, we're experimenting in this space with, if you can't say anything, what might you hear? And so that is the one thing that I would offer that we are testing out next week. And I can let you know how it goes. So, okay. So here's what I'm hearing that by doing that, and I think I just had a new connection in how I hear this, which is one, it is creating the opportunity to practice deep listening. Mm -hmm. And it is also creating the space that is psychologically safe for people to tell their stories. Exactly right. Right. It is not about muting anyone. That's right. That's right. It is about creating the discipline around listening and showing, modeling what it's like to have safe space for people to talk about impacts that are deeply personal and painful. That's right. That's right. I love that. You. That's exactly right. Thank you for that. You're welcome. And so you're going through your journey. You're in Jamaica. You have established new boundaries, new perspectives. You've written this book. And the book is White Women Cry and Call Me Angry. So before we talk about what's inside the book, can we please talk about the journey to the title? (laughs) The title, you know, I, for this book, I am looking at it. That's why I'm looking Mm -hmm. up here. This book, I want it to be plain. I want it to be plain. I want it to be as transparent as possible. I did not want to parse my words. And so this title is really exactly what was happening, right? So I had, obviously I had white women crying um, uh, when they were um, against a wall and confronted with their, um, their whiteness, their microaggressions, and then lashing out at me. Um, and so I didn't want to make that nice. I just wanted to call it what it is. And um, I also, though, say that this title is just a container for all kinds of behaviors, right? It's not just crying and it's not just calling angry. I've heard all kinds of stories. I've heard uh, white woman balling up paper and throwing it at a colleague of mine, right? Um, so it's not just these two behaviors. But um, for me, these were the primary behaviors that I experienced. And I just wanted to call it what it was. And crying by itself is not the problem. That's right. That's right. It is crying and then moving it into why you cried was because someone else that you've been victimizing, in fact. So it's a manipulation of the emotions. And the conversation shifts now 
to how we can protect you and make you feel better while the person of color, the Black person is sitting there like, well, what about me? What about me? So yes, it is definitely a manipulation tactic. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a white woman who read the book, colleague of mine, say to me, but then aren't we, are we saying that, you know, white women can't like have emotion, can't, you know, feel, you know, uh, something about this issue and therefore, you know, emote. And I was like, it's not about, it's not about emoting. It is about sidestepping accountability and using those tears to distract from the conversation at hand. That's what, that's what, that's what I mean when I talk about crying. So you could, for instance, cry and say, this is a hard conversation for me to be in, but I'm in it with you. And I want to hear what your experience is. That's not what you're talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. My first live conversations with Shonda event was with Robin D'Angelo. Ah, yes, yes, yes. In her book, I think it's chapter nine, it was White Women's Tears. Mm -hmm. My second interview that was live was with Edgar in Decolonizing Wealth. Mm -hmm. Yep, I know them well. Mm -hmm. Both of those conversations felt like an act of courage because I didn't know how I was going to emotionally respond while I was interviewing. I also did not know where the conversation would go and felt the responsibility of caring for those listening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, that mixed audience, I felt responsible for the care Mm -hmm. of them. And it was a really complicated um, scenario. We are often doing the work to eradicate things that we're squarely in and don't know how to, to deal with. That's right. It is a complex situation of both feeling or having power and not having power at the same time. The tensions, the juxtaposition um, becomes part of the weathering. That's right. And, you know, there's an essay in the book called Unhinged, where I really talk about what my body was feeling during this time. It was just such a painful period. I mean, my joints were on fire. My joints were on fire. Um, I had to take time off work. I took a couple of weeks off work. I was so fatigued. It felt like rocks in my shoes. Like I just was walking. I I could feel it. I was walking slower. Um, I was not well. Took a couple of weeks off, went to the doctor and she was like, okay, let me run a bunch of tests. And uh, she came back with, you have Lyme disease. And I just remember thinking Lyme disease, like, how would I even get <laughs> close to a tick, right? Like, I, I just I just didn't believe it. And I went to a specialist and uh, and he said, you, you don't have Lyme disease. And so for me, I can't prove whether I had Lyme, whether I didn't have Lyme, but I was right in the period of my life where I was experiencing some of the most aggressive forms of um, racism, especially from a board member. And um, I felt it in my body. I was so physically unwell, so emotionally unwell. And my board, thank God for my board, when I asked for some extra time at the end of the year, they said, don't come back until February. Like you, you need to take some time and we will support that. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise I would have left the sector much sooner. It was such a hard time. And I'm grateful for my board for, for recognizing it and actually also giving me permission to withdraw from sector activities, right? I got off all the boards, all the committees, all the things that I was working on and just focused inside and they gave me permission to do that until I was well enough again to go back back to sector convenings and I know I know I'm not the only one especially since the book I'm hearing stories of other women who would look at me and tell me that they were going through something and I didn't know they didn't know about me and I didn't know about them because I think you know for many black women we the way we carry ourselves, the way we just like get to work, 
just let's get going. Let's keep going. Let's do the work. And we look like we're doing it with style and grace. And we're like dying inside. And that was what was happening to me. What would you say is the role of governing boards? What is the role of governing boards? So philanthropy, there are organizations in philanthropy who are about this work. I don't want to diminish them. They exist. And I know that they're already supporting their leaders. Um, They're doing the right work. I am really skeptical about organizations with, you know, majority white led boards, leadership, and their ability to really care for Black women, especially. I'm really skeptical about our ability to get that from a system that was never, never designed for us, never designed to care for us. So I'm skeptical there. But if it could happen, if that could happen, and I know that for some of these organizations and philanthropy, it is happening. I I think exactly what my board did. It's like they, they believed in me. They believed in my leadership. Um, I remember um, Jackie uh, Lindsay, she was on the board when I joined, Black woman. She made it her personal mission to support me, right? Beyond board, board stuff, beyond governance, she made it her personal business to be about how does Unique fare well while here? And so actually she was the one when I said, I think I may need a couple of extra weeks at the end of the year. She was the one who said, why do you have to come back until let's let's say February, like you need this time. So I think that kind of demonstration of like belief in black women's leadership and care, understanding what we're going through, um, I think is what's needed. Yeah, there's a a line in the book. Where you say racial equity work needs to be intentional, not simply an assumed byproduct of progressive projects. I what do you mean? Mm. Um, so in that in that essay, I was talking about um, I was on a board. I won't say the name of the organization. I actually um, created a false name for that organization. They're progressive, you know, liberal progressive organization. And, you know, I think there is this sense that, okay, if we're doing work that is designed for the support of people of color, then it is equity. It is racial equity work. And I just don't believe that to be the case. Um, I think that you have to be super intentional. You have to be asking questions about like, who is benefiting from the status quo here? Who is not? If we were to act, how does our action potentially hurt Black people and people of color, right? Like it has to be super intentional because our systems are built to hurt us. It just, as they are. So if you're not intentional about not hurting Black people and really supporting Black people, then I think the the byproduct will be you'll hurt black people. So it has to be like super intentional every every stone on you know every stone turn to make sure that what you are doing whatever work you are doing is going to actually be in service of and really disrupt systems that impact black people and other people of color. Yeah, so diversifying a board and improving strategies that could have impact in brown and black communities is not deep enough. It's not deep enough. It's not deep enough. You know, there's there's also an essay in the book that talks about if you're going to be in this work together on behalf of and with black people and other people of color, then you have to get to you have to be in deep relationship yourself with each other. Right. Like because you're going to come up upon things that are hard. You're not going to want to do it. 
Um, and I think the only way you you go through and actually keep moving forward to your point earlier is to be in deep relationship with each other. And that takes, I mean, at the foundation I used to lead, we were talking about how our personal experiences with money, like you're a philanthropic organization. You're giving away money every day, but we don't talk about our personal relationships to money on a board or in a on a leadership team. So then you heard stories like, for example, my story, it's like, I'm always afraid that I won't be able to eat. I won't have enough money to eat. And I actually say that. So there's something deep within my history and psyche that makes me think that even, even with resources that that there's a scarcity of resources, right? So if I don't, if I am not able to say that to you, board member sitting next to me, who is also afraid of something else, and every day we're dealing with money, I just don't think we can be as impactful. So it's like intentional storytelling, intentional relationship building, intentional analysis of the work. It is much more than you know, diversify your board and approve, approve grants and strategy. Absolutely. When you were talking, I was thinking, I remember when I first came into formal philanthropy and just saw the way that resources were being used. And um, I think someone said to me something like you're in philanthropy now and, you know, this is what we do or whatever they said. And I remember saying back, look, I'm used to making a dollar out of 15 cents. I came from leading a foundation and the money we just spent would have supported a youth program for an entire year or entire summer program. Right. Like my perspective on how to leverage resources is really different because it happens in relationship and it gets leveraged and it is thoughtful in a different way. And. So in a, in a sense, it is scarcity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not in a sense, it's a scarcity mindset. But I remember saying it a couple of times, like we're going to make a dollar at 15 cents. Right. We're going to make it work. That's right. And so you're sitting next to, okay, so you bring that, you're sitting next to, let's say a white man whose family has left him millions of dollars, him and his brothers, for example, and you're on a board together. So you you have this experience with scarcity, as many Black people do, even even people who are middle class have some experience. There's somebody in their families, there's somebody in their networks. And then you've got someone who's just got abundance, abundance upon abundance and upon abundance of money, trying to make decisions about how to move a racial justice agenda without talking to each other. It doesn't work. And so, I mean, we, we began to do that. It was a very, that retreat was, people were tentative. It's hard to talk about your relationship to money um, with people who you work with. Yeah. What was the outcome of that conversation? Was, was trust built? Was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And it wasn't just that conversation. We, um, we just, we had this, um, it's called Tree of Life. We use this tool where every board meeting for a year, we would get in pairs and talk about um, who our parents were, our grandparents, what they did for work, um, kind of where you are now, what you do for work, um, where do you live, um, how do you make your money? Like it was this entire kind of process to get people to talk about their families. And while doing that to um, see all of the social issues that arise when you're talking about your family. And so we did that for a year. And then at each board meeting, two or three people would go and put on a wall, plotting a moment in their history that um, signified their story. And so we built this timeline of, you know, 19 people, board and staff, their stories, their histories, all of that. So there was that. We did a lot of very intentional storytelling and relationship building in order to move our work further 
than we otherwise would have because we didn't trust each other. Right. And it also is about understanding and trusting your own experiences. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. That's what I imagine that it's not just about what you hear, but it's also about the reflection because we often do the work without reflecting on what has shaped my current worldview. What is shaping the way I'm reacting to this right now? Yeah. And I'm feeling that right now, as you say that, um, I'm feeling a little tender because when I told my story, I talked about how I came to the United States when I was 10, going on 11, and became Black. Like, I didn't know that I was Black before then. And, you know, people would look at me and say, oh, she's been successful here, though. The U.S. has worked for her. You know, she got a Ph.D. She runs a foundation. uh, She has a home. And I remember turning around to the group and saying, but at what cost? At what cost coming to the United States and becoming Black? That is exactly what I asked the group. And so you are so right. It wasn't just about the stories that I was listening to, but also like asking myself, what is the cost of being in the U.S. and striving while Black? And I think part of that question has led me here to now not, you know, because you grow up and you think, oh, if you grow up in like a place like Jamaica, you think, oh, you're trying to get to the U.S. That's where that's where the good stuff is. And now appreciating all the good stuff here. And, um, you know, there's there's less, you know, infrastructure, you know, you go. To, I, I just got back to the States, back from the States. I went to DSW, huge, massive. There is no such thing here. It's, you know, no such store that large. I make less money now. Right. But I feel so different mm-hmm. than I did while I was, you know, dealing with racism as often as I was. Mm-hmm. So I'm feeling very tender as you as you say. Yeah, that. thank you. Thank you for um, expressing that, because it's in our sharing that others can feel less isolated in their own life. It also has me thinking around the intersectionality of class and race and that sometimes it is almost communicated intentionally or not. That as you move forward in career and move into a position of power, your experience around racism is less because you have more power. It's interesting. Right. You have more resources to address perhaps what you are experiencing, but there's there are different things. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that. Right. Like. When I think about the poor Black communities that I've worked in and how isolated, targeted by police they are, I never felt that targeted in the neighborhoods that I grew up in as my family increased their class status. So I agree with that. And... It does. Racism just doesn't go away for you. So especially if you're in white institutions and sectors, it doesn't go away for you. So it's like it's it's trying to hold both. Um, We had this conversation a lot at the foundation because. For for many years, I was advocating that on the board of trustees, we needed people who were experiencing homelessness, low wage work poverty right now, not in their past, but right now. If that's who we're working on behalf of and with, they should be at the decision-making table with us. And people would say, well, what about what about me? Even though I'm middle class, I'm experiencing this. Or, you know, 40 years ago, I used to live in the project. So what about me? 
And so it's not to discount the experiences of Black middle-class people. I, I absolutely believe it. I've experienced it myself. But Black folks who don't have the resources we have, they are getting it. They are getting hit over the head. And um, I, it, I just think that though it's, it's a really, really tough place to be in, um, even as I can hold that I am also experiencing racism in a different way. Right. Right. And right. The, the threading of this conversation is that it requires conversations. Um, and a depth of conversations that allows you to hear others experience. That's right. And that if you're not doing that and moving into solution, you're probably solving the wrong issue. Exactly. Right. Exactly. You're minimizing the experience of others by not listening to what the need is. You're making assumptions around what the need is. Right. Which is what right. we talked about. Right. Or you're using your power or your privilege exactly. to then lay it on what you think someone needs because you know the answer without right. knowing people. Exactly. And again, even if you have experienced that thing, if you are not in that situation right now, I think your your memory, your your experience of that time, it's softened a bit. You know, you don't feel it as much. And in order for us to move work on racial justice, I feel like we need to just always be feeling it, feeling the discomfort of of and for those who are like on the margins, like really like on the margins. And I think we tend to look away. It's too hard or or maybe it's like, oh, I don't want to be back there again or something, you know, like we just don't. also not timely. It doesn't fit. It's not a timely conversation to take yeah. time. With. That's right. That's right. right. It's not transactional. It, right. It, it, right. it actually takes time to invest in exactly. people. Exactly. Exactly. So the book you referred a couple of times, the book, uh, White Women Call, uh, Cry, White Women Cry and Call Me Angry. You have you have said in this essay, in this essay. So how was the book organized? Uh, yeah, nice question. So there are three sections in this book. The first section is really about um, my own kind of experience of childhood trauma. My question really is to Black women, what have you experienced that might have led you to this kind of work? Because I think that my own trauma led me to want to correct injustice. So there's a whole like essay, a couple of essays that explore that. Um, and also just how I became radicalized. And by radicalized, I mean learning to think about the root causes of issues. So that's the first section. I wanted people to know who I am so that they could understand why I took the positions I took when I was in the sector, when I was in philanthropy. The second section is about that time in philanthropy. It is a series of essays about my experiences with white women in very um, exacting detail. I use uh, email exchanges, conversations, because I really wanted people to to see how racism and their experiences of it show up in like the day to day, right? So it's like it's that it's that email that you just you're like, what did she just say? You know. It's that like um, when Amanda Seals says, and then you want to respond to it, and then you look at, it and you're like, delete, 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 because yeah. <laughs> yeah. you don't, don't want to match it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really, just happened, right? So that second section is all about those experiences, um, and each essay describes a particular microaggression um, or series of microaggressions, and then the third section is really about how, you know, I said earlier, I went internal, right? I left all the boards and all the committees and said, okay, the foundation I was working for at the time, it was consumer health foundation. Now it's if a foundation for radical possibility. And the question was, are we as, are we as racial justice focused as we can be? And so the third section is about our own deepening of our relationship building, our transformation, getting community members who are on the margins onto the board, 
Um, our grant making, 100% of the grant making is now participatory grant making. That means people who are experiencing the very things that we uh, want to see eliminated, they're the ones making decisions about grants. It's all about the transformation of the foundation. So that's how the book is organized. And each essay has a question or two at the end to help the reader, to help you, the reader, um, really, you know, dive into the content. So for example, in the first essay, which is called The Search, where I talk about searching for my childhood self, I ask, what is the grief from the distant or recent past that lives in your bones? And how does this grief influence the work you do today? So each essay has like a deep dive question to help you process the essay before moving on to the next one. Is there um, any essay in the book that you want to share with this audience? Oh, yes. One of my favorite essays um, is called A Pleasure Virgin Discovers the Antidote to Whiteness. Mm -hmm. And this essay is about how broken I was and how um, pleasure the exploration, the seeking of pleasure really saved me. After almost six years in the philanthropic sector, I clawed my way out of a debilitating funk and found my therapist's couch again. I had tried on my own to deal with white women's microaggressions and backlash. I really had. Taking time off from work during a period of whiteness-induced fatigue Studying with enthusiasm a convincing text on how to talk to white people about race. The book encourages the reader of color to be curious about white people's version of the truth, but I always felt like a fraud. I could hear myself asking white people, can you say more about that? But I just didn't give a damn. I sat on Dr. Brown's couch with my notebook and pen because I am that girl prepared to challenge my automatic thoughts born from old recurring schemas. This bread and butter of cognitive behavioral therapy had saved me in the past. I had exercised many a personal demon with CBT. Instead, she queried me about my pleasure routine. Caught off guard by the question, I responded with a series of conflicting facial expressions a blank stare followed by a quizzical brow and then a slightly gaping mouth poised to reply. But I did not have a good answer, nor did I understand why in the face of my dilemma with white women, this black woman was asking me about pleasure. I finally offered my love of travel. I do so with Rami a couple of times every year, the Caribbean mostly, but recently Paris and Northern Spain. Unimpressed, she dug further for everyday pleasure, but I had nothing for her. I was not in a committed relationship with pleasure. Instead, I had been in a twisted menage a trois of sorts with pain and suffering, and they were adamant about one thing. If it doesn't hurt, it's not worth doing. Wow. Like my eyes are watering uh, for those that, that won't see this. And I don't know why the eloquence in which that was described. Maybe it's deep sadness for the generational expectation of our relationship with those things. That's right. Right. That we pass on that life will be hard and it's not fair and you're going to encounter things and they're going to treat you this way and we're going to do these things and you embody it as though that is the only possibility of how to live life. Right. Ooh, I'm feeling that too. And it, it wraps it back around to me of when people talk about self-care, a lot of times what we're talking about is maintenance. Go get your nails done. Like those are appointments. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's not going to do it. It's not going to do it. Right. Uh, Right. What we're talking about is deep work on all sides of the equations that we've been talking about. That's right. Yeah. (sighs) Um, mm, I'm so feeling this. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I can't I, I, I think 
ever since I was about 10 years old, 11. Um, and I, I described this trauma, this beating that I got um, that made me feel so worthless. I thought, you know what? I'm going to work so hard that I'll be worthy. And so I became that straight A student, right? I became that president of this, this club, go on to college, work, career driven, just work, work, work all the time, all the time, around the clock. And I thought I was doing good by taking a vacation. So every year, you know, we go somewhere a week, couple of weeks. And I thought that was good. Um, and when my therapist said to me, no, what's the everyday pleasure? I, I was literally, I had no answer for her. I was looking at her like, I don't know what you are talking about. What, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> like a project? I said that to her. You mean like a project? And she was like, no, she's a black woman. No, no, no. All <laughs> right. I'm talking about, can you do something? And let's just start with one day a week. That just feels good. It just feels good to you. It's not a project. You don't have to go like I would do things like start a garden or, you know, like some big project. And she was like, no, it just feels good to you. And I had no frame of reference for that, none. And so I just began this pleasure journey. I leaned on Adrian Marie Brown's pleasure activism um, and just started to experiment. You know, I started with the basic things like what you just described, you know, getting my nails done and, you know, going to the movies by myself. It That wasn't it either, right? And to the place where I am now, where it is like, it is being in such stillness that I can appreciate mm, the flowers, <laughs> right? Birds, yeah, you know, hear things because I I don't think I was hearing things before. I was so busy, I wasn't still enough to like take in what was around me, to take in things that smell good. I always talk about my daughter; she's big on skincare, and she's got me this papaya face wash. It smells so good. And I know that I couldn't smell it before. I just was too preoccupied with what needs to happen on behalf of our people. So this is not, it's not like I was pre preoccupied with some like negative stuff. I was preoccupied with what I thought was the right thing, but completely devoid of any stillness, any ability to enjoy myself, to please myself. Um, I have a pleasure coach. Her name is Tosh Patterson. Um, and so that's pleasure from like the basics that I just described all the way to sexual pleasure. Like, how do I bask in what pleases me? I had no frame of reference before my therapist asked me about daily pleasure. None. What I'm thinking about is this conversation is a little different than where I thought it was going to go. Oh, oh no. <laughs> um, and in all the best, wonderful ways, okay. what I'm hearing in the way that you're talking about, right? The juxtaposition between the title mm -hmm. and what you're saying is that we own a lot of the work, mm -hmm. right? We own how we live our lives. We own the boundaries that we set. We own the right to reflect, right? To understand, to be in relationship with ourselves fully allows us to be in a different relationship with others, right? Our reaction, what we're willing to absorb, what we're not, right? That there are choices that we may not even know are available to us because we're moving in such weight that the heaviness of the weight, whatever it might be, has not allowed us to see the opportunity that exists around us. Right. And I, I don't want at all to suggest that um, we are to be blamed for no. what we experience. Right. So want to make that really clear. Um, and I know myself included that we have bills to pay. We have jobs 
to pay those bills. So no, no blame and no, no shade on anyone. No judgment. Who, you know what I'm saying? Who has to tru- choose to stay in a job because they've got family to support. And for us, for Black people especially, we are supporting so many more people on our income than many others are. And so no, no shade at all. And I am realizing in this period of my life, you know, when I left my job um, with no job and um, stopped, like stopped all of the the work and the going every day. And I even said to my therapist, can I please just work 10 hours a week while we are going through this therapy work? (laughs) Can I just work a little bit so that I don't feel so lost, you know? Um, And so I do think, I do think that there are some opportunities for us that we can't see when we're in the village. Right. And the choice for me is not the choice to leave or stay. It's the choice right. and how you respond and how you reflect. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That the, these are very individual choices. The other thing that I was thinking about is the lenses and the frames in which we think through. Am I worthy? Am I smart? Am I pretty enough? Am I whatever the I am? And everyone has that frame. And so knowing what it is can help you modulate how you're responding. Right. That's why the first essay, matter of fact, it's the first essay in the book, but it was the last one to get in because I, you know, I'd written it a long time ago. It was about my childhood experience of abuse. And I put it in because I thought, okay, in order to be free, to be fully liberated, I have to deal with this thing. It's been with me for decades. It's, I mean, I've done a lot of work on it, but I need to really like understand how working around the clock is related to my desire to feel worthy. And so that's why it's there. It's there to ask Black women, what has, what has caused you grief? It may not be abusive, but it could be something else. What has tricked you into thinking you're not good enough or you're not pretty enough? And how is that showing up in the way you drive yourself, diminish yourself? I hope people listening heard that because there are a lot of people that are working around the clock that are not taking time off because they feel so necessary in the work, but not in connection to what they need to sustain in the work. Right. There is a filter in which you're living through that is telling you you can't take a break. That's right. Yep. And for years I had that filter. I don't have it anymore, but I, for years I had yeah, I don't have that either. <laughs> I don't have that. Okay. Last question is how do you maintain hope? Mm. Oh, Shonda. Sure. <laughs> Hope is such a, oh, that word for me is so tough. I go back and forth, right? So I will be in hope, especially when I see people actually like on the front lines doing the work. Um, I'm interviewing right now for a big project and I'm interviewing some advocates and they are, they believe and they're on the ground and they're doing the work. So that gives me a lot of hope. And then I will move into, you know what, that country, this country, the U.S., there is no, there's no hope for this country. Um, I have studied the work of Randall Robinson in his book, Quitting America, when he said, I'm done, I'm, I'm out. So then I have those moments, right? So I'm in and out of hope quite a bit. And so for me, maintaining hope is about connecting with, uh, especially right now, Black women, like, you know, when I went to Atlanta to do a talk and it was just so good, so nourishing. Um, Yes, we're all working in racial justice, but just loving on each other, like that, like community gives me hope, right? That my community can hold me, I can hold my community. And even if 
you know, things aren't moving as fast as we want them to. Um, even if things are distressing, like we can build community with each other. And that has been the most hopeful thing for me at this at this period in my life. Community. Unique Redwood, thank you for all that you contribute. And if people wanted to find out more about you and the book, where would they go? The book is only available on my website, which is www.whitewomencry.com. And all my events um, are, um, you can find them on Instagram and the handle is the same at White Women Cry. If you want to know more about Voice Vision Value, check us out at voicevisionvalue.org, where you can also read the Twin Cities chapter of the forthcoming book, Portraits of Us.